I was finally able to speak to one of your parents. I called your father at his office. A cord buried deep inside William vibrated. He wished he hadn't taken things so far that his parents had to be involved. He'd given the doctor his mother's and father's names when she'd written down his life history. I assume he said that he couldn't help, William said. He said you are an adult and therefore on your own. He actually hung up on me. William, I want you to know that this isn't a normal parental response. It's unkind and unfair. You deserve and deserved better from your parents. You were born to two broken people, and that's part of why you're here. Welcome to Bibliophiles at Home, a book club podcast for introverts. I'm Camilla. And I'm Jennifer. Each episode, we will break down a book using current bestseller lists, Goodreads recommendations, and of course, book talk. At the end of each episode, we will announce our next book so you can read along with us. So grab your favorite beverage, get comfy cozy, and join us as we embark on this reading journey from the comfort of home. All right, so Jen, what did you what was your quick take on this book? I really liked it. Um, it was a great book. It was it was heavy, you know, so I, it wasn't a book that I could sit down and devour in one sitting or even a couple of sittings. I had to go back to it and uh, take it in bits, but I, I loved it. I thought it was great. What about you? I agree with you. It was definitely, I wouldn't call it quite a slow burn as much as I would call it a book that I had to take my time with. Yeah. Because of it was heavier than I anticipated, actually. Yeah, same. Um, but I really did like it quite a bit. So before we dive in, I'd like to give a little bit of a background on our author. Anne Napolitano is the author of New York Times bestseller, Dear Edward, which I did find out is now streaming on Apple TV Plus as a show. Did oh, so know. a show, not a not a movie. It's a series? I, I think it's a series, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm, I have to probably look into it a yeah. little bit more, but I did read the book, so I'd be curious to see how the show is in comparison. Uh, Anne has also written two other novels, A Good Hard Look and Within Arm's Reach, and has an MFA from New York University and has taught fiction writing for both Brooklyn College's MFA program as well as for her alma mater. She also teaches at the Gotham Writers Workshop, which is pretty cool. Um, and some something I found out um, as well, which I thought might interest you, is that her novel Within Arm's Reach was actually adapted and staged as a theater production. Yeah, 2014. That's pretty cool. I know you're a theater fan. Um, and of course, uh, personally, she lives in Brooklyn with her husband and their two kids. All right, I'm going to give us a quick plot summary before we dive into our deep discussion. Sounds good. The book follows the story of William Waters, a young child who grows up in a loveless home. The story starts with the death of William's older sister, which occurred when William was only a newborn infant. The death of his sister colors most of his childhood. Her absence and the trauma of the loss causes William's parents to grow detached and disinterested towards him. As a quiet child, William seeks comfort in playing basketball, first alone and then with the neighborhood kids. As a teenager and young adult, William continues to improve his skills at basketball. And he also starts to grow tall, a skill that you cannot acquire, but is quite advantageous for someone who wants to play basketball professionally. His passion for basketball pays off, and William gets a scholarship to Northwestern in Chicago. 
As a freshman, William meets Julia Padovano, a feisty, driven student who sets her sights on William and decides they belong together. The story follows William's integration into the Padovano family and explores the complex and often messy relationship dynamics of its members over the course of three generations. All right, so this is the point in the podcast where we are going to be divulging deep spoilers. Yeah, there's going to be heavy, uh, heavy reveals going on from this point on. So you have been warned. And additionally, we want to take an opportunity to just mention that going forward, there will be some trigger warnings due to the plot line of the story, particularly yeah. with the heavy themes of suicide ideation as well as attempted suicide. Right. Which just not something that you would know um, ahead of time reading the book because it's kind of integral to a, a main plot point, but I think important to know um, So for the purposes of this analysis of our book. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. So the main thing, you know, when we first start this book, we're immediately told that William has grown up as an only child because when he was, I think it's six days old, his older sister, who was a preschooler, um, died. I think younger. Was she younger? Oh, I okay. think th- three years old. So just yeah, shy. yeah, very little. Yeah. Um, and uh, seemed like it wasn't really clearly understood. She had been kind of sick, had a fever and a cough, and uh, seemed to be getting better. And then was um, she apparently like died in her sleep. Um, so yeah, very starts off very heavy. I was not re- not ready for that to yeah. be honest. And um, as a little personal tidbit. My daughter had a cough around the time that I started reading this book, and I was mm. immediately calling the pediatrician. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was just, it, it felt a little, it hit a little close to home right. for me. Right, yeah. And uh, it, it, I felt like it was vague. You yeah, know, we don't yeah. really ever find out. We don't out. know for sure. Yeah. Right. I think it, later in the book, it's um, commented that it might have been a flu or pneumonia. Right. But briefly, yeah. I don't think we ever quite know certain, you know, for certain what had happened to right, her. Right. Right. But you know, that event sets in motion this um this really sets up William for the rest of his life because his parents um basically because his birth coincided so closely with her death, his existence is this constant reminder of the child that they lost. And so you know, per, you know, we're both parents. As a parent, I ha- can't imagine what it would be like to lose it. Well, I guess I, I can try to imagine, but I can't accurately imagine what it would be like to lose a child. But I would like to think that the presence of another child would be a comfort and be healing. But for William's parents, it is just this reminder of what they've lost. And so they are completely detached. They, he grows up in this loveless home where he feels that he is a constant inconvenience to them. Right. Yeah, I couldn't imagine what drove his parents uh, to have that kind of reaction. I mean, yeah. certainly, like you mentioned, I can't imagine the loss of a child. So who knows how you would react in right, the moment. Right, of course. But I, I think I could say probably confidently that I don't believe I would take it out on my other children to that extent. Yeah. You know, it just felt like they, he was pretty much on his own. Right. Absolutely. And he talks about how he could never have a cough when he was a child. You know, he would, he would go into his closet and hide if he needed to cough because it would set his parents off if he gave that, which, which is just so strange because he, and I don't know if it was because it was reminding them of their daughter, 
or if it had to do with the fact that they were worried they were going to lose him. But because of his, it just, it just wasn't rational, right? It wasn't logical. And that's, that's part of it because that response by his parents was not rational or logical. Right. So. And it definitely um, comes up later in the story as well, yes. how detached they are. I mean, it seems like we spend a very short period of time in his early childhood. I think the most that we can glean is that his parents were quite uninvolved as far as parenting goes. Right. Uh, which really drives William's passion for basketball. Right. Right. Yeah, he sees the kids. He's he just tries not to spend time at home because he feels that he is an inconvenience to his parents. And so, it's in the neighborhood playground when he sees some kids playing basketball for the first time that he becomes interested in that. And sort of uh, basketball becomes a comfort to him, but it also kind of becomes an idol to him as well. In terms of he, um, it becomes his entire meaning for existence. He does everything he can do to get better at basketball. And it becomes his reason for living, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think about William's pretty surprising and unprecedented growth spurt? (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, So I think he far um, surpasses what would have been his genetic potential, right? Because he talks about his dad being average height. So we're going to guess maybe like 5'10". And he tops out at about 6'7", I think. So... It's really interesting that he believes that he willed himself to grow to that height because he so badly wanted to be successful at basketball. So I think that is a nod to um, his obsession with it and his belief that it was the only thing of value, the only thing that mattered in his life, that he needed to have that ability. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So after much success in his basketball career – in high school, William is able to secure a full scholarship. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure to the University of no, Northwestern. Northwestern, Northwestern okay. in Chicago. Yeah, I kept always thinking it was like Chicago University, and I'm like, I don't think that that's yeah. a thing that exists. <laughs> yeah, but. no, Northwestern, which is pretty impressive. You know, Northwestern is a um, for both for academics and for sports. That's so. pretty incredible. Yeah, and no excitement from William's parents on, in nope, this regard. Not at all. And so he lived in the Boston area, right? So it was a fairly significant move to leave home. And uh, I think he says, didn't he, doesn't he say something about either he wrote one letter or he got one letter or something like no communication with his parents. He doesn't go home at the holidays. Right. I think they dropped him off and said they're pretty, it's basically like, yeah, goodbye. You're on your own. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Which I can't imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So once William gets established in Northwestern, he actually makes his first real friend that we learned by name. Yeah, Kent. Kent. So I think he I think it's mentioned that part of his scholarship is work study. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to work in the laundry facilities because he doesn't have to interact with anybody, he doesn't have to have FaceTime, and initially he is um told he cannot work there right. because he's white. Right. And um, then Kent, who is uh, black and also plays on the basketball team with him, puts in a good word for him with the lady in charge of the laundry room. And so that's how they get to be buddies. And and he's a great influence. I mean, he, yeah, he, yeah, he's he's one of those characters that, um, yeah, yeah, I, I loved him. He, he, I felt like we all need a Kent Absolutely. in our lives as far as friends go, right? He just yeah. always... And we'll get into it a little bit more as the plot develops, but he just, he put a lot of effort into 
William's best interests, right? And right. Self- selflessly Absolutely. At, at times. Yeah. And I just felt like, I, w- I want to have a friend like Ken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was a true friend and was, was really um, aware of a lot about William that William wasn't aware of. Right. Yeah. That was... It's interesting to see how his own story kind of overlaps with yeah. Williams at times, um, but I just felt like he was such a light for William to have, and it, it felt like you said you know, kind of to play off what you said. William didn't f- know how much he was seen by Kent, right? You know, absolutely. It felt like w- we could glean a lot from William through Kent's yes. own responses to him. Yeah. Now, after some time at Northwestern, we meet one of our more important characters. Yeah, in the in that of the feisty, <laughs> I think, uh, pretty goal-driven Julia Padovano. Yeah, absolutely. So they're in a history class together, I think, um, and she approaches him, and pretty quickly just decides, yep, this guy fits the bill. I, we're going to get married. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. She, she planned everything. Absolutely. And it felt like very quickly, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and from the very beginning, their relationship, it, the, the power balance is off kilter, right? Like mm-hmm. it's established from the very beginning. Julia's in charge. Julia's running the show. William is a very passive person in general. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, well, so let me ask you this, because we've already said that we're going to have, you know, these big spoilers and whatnot. So what we eventually find out, and I think what probably an astute reader will have already started to suspect is that William is struggling with depression. And that is manifesting in his sort of disconnectedness with people and with his life in his um, sort of drifting type Mm -hmm. of personality. He, he can't really, you know, focus on anything. He can't really see past tomorrow, that type of a thing. So, um, did, were you sort of picking up on that at this point? Because that's in their relationship with Julia say, you know, driving it and William just sort of going along for the ride and doing whatever she said. That's, that's not normal, you know? (laughs) So. No, I don't think that's normal at all. And quite frankly, at times it feels like William is a passenger in his own life. Yeah. And I feel like as the reader, you're also his, like another passenger. Right. It's like he's watching it happen to him rather than being an active participant. Right. And I definitely feel like, you know, in hindsight, Julia is probably what he needed at that time, even though it wasn't the most healthy arrangement. And I think that's a, it's pretty telling for most relationships or some relationships that can come together, maybe not over the the healthiest of reasons. Am yeah. I off on that? No, I don't think you're off. I think it's just your own take. I don't know if I agree that it's what he needed because Julia is so unaware of what he needs and she she is very selfish, I think. And so she is viewing him as an instrument or as a means to an end um, rather than seeing him for who he really is and and where he's struggling and what he really wants. You know, she she decides we're going to date, we're going to get married, you're going to be a history professor, and he just sort of agrees, agrees, agrees. She doesn't seem to be aware that he is not 
interested in these things or that he that he has no opinion, right? Right. And so in a relationship, you don't want to be, or at least I don't, I don't want to be in a relationship with another person where I'm telling them what to do all the time. But that that is exactly who Julia is. That is what she wants. She wants to be in control. She wants to tell him what to do. I think she says something there about what he has questions and she has answers. So that's why they were perfect together. Yeah, I think you're right on that assessment. And I think the more I think about it, it's not necessarily what William, I think it's a combination of what William actually needed Mm. and what he thought he needed. Right. And I think just that initial investment that she was willing to make in him. Right. Fulfilled a need that he did have at the time. Right. Right. It's, It's like he needed, he needed someone to help him figure things out to help him figure out what he wanted. But she sort of went, you know, she sort of told him what he right. what he wanted and what he needed rather than helping him figure that out on his own. Right. He needed direction, but she decided to tell him exactly what direction to go. Right, right. Yeah. And in a way, probably fulfilled a parental role for Absolutely. Him, right? That is the first thing I thought when she said the thing about he had questions and I have answers. Um, I thought, wow, this is not a this is not a husband wife or boyfriend girlfriend relationship. This is a parent child relationship, and it's it's. I think it's easy for people that lack in that area mm-hmm. of their lives to potentially seek that out in their partner, right. which is not the healthiest yeah. way, right? So Julia, of course, you know this is the guy she's going to marry. She's got to show him to the family, right? So she brings him home, and so then we're introduced to. Well, actually, no. I think first they she he meets her sisters at a basketball at game, the basketball right? game, yeah, yeah. Before he brings before she brings him home, so he meets uh, Sylvie, who is Julia's sister. I think they're maybe like less than a year apart, or right, very close Irish in age. Twins. Right, yeah. So Julia's the oldest, but then Sylvie comes right after, and then there are the twins. Um, Cecilia and Emmeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't remember if we mentioned in our um, trailer, but this book is sort of very loosely based on Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. So we have the four sisters. And um, I, I mean, other than the fact that there's four sisters and they occasionally mention the sisters from Little Women, that that's really most of the similarities. Right, um, right. But. Yeah, the only thing I really gleaned was the reference i didn't really attribute any particular sister to any particular character uh except the references of beth which i do think was some heavy foreshadowing foreshadowing for sure and i mean and they do mention throughout that there there are some little elements of the of the girls in each of them there are things they see i think sylvie was it sylvie and uh julia who argue about which one of them is joe right yeah right because sylvie loves books but um uh, Julia is the driven one right. with the, all the passion. Yeah, so, right, right. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely did ap- appreciate those references, but I definitely would say that knowing how the book ends, there was only a few plot points, I guess, that really overlapped that really between the it. two. Right, right. So after the basketball game, uh, Julia brings William home, and he is able to meet her parents. Yeah, uh, which although. I think that they differed quite a bit from his own parents. And we're speaking, of course, of Charlie and Rose. Right. Um, What did you think of them as characters, as people? (laughs) Well, it's interesting because so as we get further into the book, closer to the end, I realized, wow, Rose is Julia is Rose Mm -hmm. and Sylvie is Charlie. Right. And so so it's. 
um, I think that that dynamic, it's interesting because we, they're initially established as this, you know, very loving family. They welcome William with open arms. And Rose is very adamant that, you know, William is an orphan. And at some point, Julia tells Rose or sort of tries to explain to her this dynamic between him and his parents, how they are removed, have removed themselves from his life. And so she basically, when, when Julia and William get married, she tells William, you'll, you'll call me mom now. Mm-hmm. So at first you sort of think, oh, wow, you know, he's, he's being welcomed into this loving family. But then we, we start to see elements of how Rose, like Julia, has a very specific idea of how her children should live their lives. Right. And she wants to be in control. And when it does not go her way, it, she, she does not like it. Right. And very selfish as well. I think a lot of those selfish tendencies that we do see in Julia, I think are first mirrored in Rose, which to Rose's defense, I I, I had, Charlie was a very likable character, but if that was my spouse, I would probably be pulling my hair out lovingly, of course. (laughs) Right. But I, but I, I also, I feel for Charlie, you know, so Charlie is this very, you know, poetic you know, uh, tortured soul, tortured soul mm-hmm. who drinks too much and goes to work, but has no really grand ambitions. And so, you know, they're just barely scraping by. And um, Rose is just so disappointed in him for not wanting more and doing more. But I really feel for Charlie because I have to wonder how much of his apathy is Rose induced. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, she she was never satisfied with who he was or what he wanted or how he how he wanted to live his life. Right. Right. So and to skip ahead, I mean, we're we're spoiler friendly here. Right. We're, we're in it. <laughs> you know, when he passes on later in the book, I mean, he is beloved Absolutely. by the community. Yeah, like, they come what out an of outpouring. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that kind of had me chuckling a little bit, um, not to skip ahead, but. I was kind of interested in the backstory between the formula that he was donating to a young mom. Oh, right. And I'm, I don't know if – maybe I'm just cynical, but I'm like, is that a love child situation? Oh, Did I anybody ne- catch mm-hmm. that vibe? I never, I, I never thought of that. No. I wondered more if it had to do with the fact that Rose saw him providing for someone else's child and felt like he wasn't providing – for his own family in the way she wanted him to, rather than seeing that he was a provider. He was providing. He was providing in the most important ways, um, you know, providing love. He was, he, all of his children were so special to him and everything that they wanted was good enough for him. What they wanted was good enough for him. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I did feel for him as well. I just felt like maybe I'm, the opposite. Maybe I'm. Maybe I need to do some self-reflecting, and I'm realizing <laughs> I'm more like Rose. Not, you know. I just feel like there, there has to be a balance. I think so. I could see how over time, that very fluid lifestyle sure. could be grating on someone that feels like they're, you know, breaking their back in their garden, right? You know, for their family, right? But I think that there can. There's two sides to every story, right? But yeah. I do think that how he's perceived by the community does actually really give a lot of depth to his character. Yeah. You know. So, of course, we know that Julia and William get married. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's – we don't spend too much time there plot-wise. I think the major plot points that we do 
receive is that William has an injury that's life-changing for his basketball career prior yeah. to um, they've both graduated from Northwestern. And we, a pretty major plot point, which really dictates how most of the you know the book proceeds, is that Cecilia is pregnant yep. and out of you know out of wedlock, which was much to the dismay of Rose. <laughs> right, absolutely. Well, and to Julia too. So at, it's at the wedding that Cecilia reveals to Sylvie that she's pregnant and that she's going to keep the baby. She's not going to involve the father. Um, and we find out later, you know, this was her, her first and for a long time only sexual encounter was this one that resulted in this pregnancy. She's 17 years old. Um, she doesn't tell Julia right away because she doesn't want to steal her thunder. She doesn't Mm want to take away from her important day. Um, but yeah, so we, we find out as well that Rose was pregnant when she married Charlie. So with Julia. It was Julia. Out right. of wedlock originally. Out of wedlock. So mm-hmm. they get married. And so Rose has a hard time, first of all, that Cecilia plans to have the baby and not get married um, because she believes that's what you do. You get pregnant, you get married. But also, Rose kind of has this idea that a pregnancy can sort of ruin your life, which which is sort of sad, right? That her, her life hasn't been ruined. But I think she views the fact that she got pregnant. So, so this is the weird thing, right? Because her marriage to Charlie has been so frustrating and unfulfilling. And she got married because she was pregnant, yet she's upset with her daughter that she won't get married because she's pregnant. I don't know. It's just that illogical thing coming in again. Yeah. And I think Rose is quite hypocritical in this scenario because I think she had an opportunity with Cecilia's pregnancy to break generational curses. I I think that was a major theme in this book is are we more like our parents than we initially thought? Right. I agree. Um, You know, Rose was... I believe when she finds out she's pregnant with Julia, even though she goes on to marry Charlie, was still disowned by her mother. She never speaks to her again. Yeah, they never spoke again. And she has the opportunity with this pregnancy of her own daughter to say, you know, I know what my mom did to me, and I'm not going to do that to my kids. But no, Rose was like, Rose is not having any of that, which I thought was disappointing for her as a character. Although I do feel that. This book wasn't quite about her character development, but it does provide that example of the major theme. What what I felt was one of the major themes of this book was, you know, generational curses within families and how that plays out in our own journey to parenthood. And that did speak to me quite a bit. Um, You know, I felt like we really segue quite quickly from Julia's wedding to marriage to the pregnancy. And then Julia, in an effort to try to take control of her own familial outcome decides she's getting pregnant. Absolutely. So her <laughs> her initial response is to tell Cecilia, I was supposed to get pregnant first. Yeah, it was me. <laughs> it was I, you've ruined everything. <laughs> you've you've, you've, you've stolen you've, my thunder. Cha- yes, you've changed my plan. And then she decides, oh no, wait, wait, wait. This this will be perfect. I'll get pregnant and then we'll have babies together and they'll grow up like they were sisters. She she plans it all out just like that. And uh, so, as you mentioned, William has injured his – he had injured his knee uh, as a teenager in high school, re-injures the same knee again in college to the extent that his basketball career is over. He was probably not ever going to play professionally anyway, but um, now for sure For sure. So – I did want to interject and say that a quote um, after his replacement – or, you know, 
surgery to yeah. fix this shattered kneecap. Uh, I loved the doctor who tells Julia at like a post-op visit, don't let him disrespect my work. Mm. And I thought that was just so funny because I'm sure surgeons, do, I mean, this is yeah. just a side note, but I feel I, I laughed for some reason at that part, mm-hmm. probably because of my own experience with um, surgeries that my kids have had, uh, cleft lip repair to be more specific. But I remember the surgeon being so like adamant about protecting Right, what he had done for the reconstructive surgery that I'm like, yeah, that's a that's what something a, a surgeon would say. Yeah, and and William does not rehab his knee properly, no, he does and so not. it's stiff, it's painful, and that is also, I think, a sign of his increasing depression because mm-hmm. now that basketball is done, he sort of views it as what what's the point? You yeah. know, why does it matter if my knee works at all? Right. Because I can't play basketball, can't so play what basketball. do I care? Right. But that that also, I think, plays into Julia's decision to get pregnant because William's in this Ph.D. program now, which was, again, all her idea. And she has it, um, you know, just all in her head. She's going to be a stay at home mom. He's going to be a professor. They're going to start their family. It's going to be perfect. So she tells him, hey, let's have a baby. And he he is not so sure about it, but she seems sure. So he goes. Along yeah, they're with sure. It. Right. Yeah. If Julia. Yeah, sh- sure. Yeah. They're both sure. Yeah. And I feel like that. At that point, we're really starting to see the decline of his mental status. Um, It doesn't seem like he's super interested in the pregnancy. I mean, I felt like he was kind of like, are we ready for this? And she was like, oh, yeah, Yeah. we're ready. William, as the voice of reason, lets you know that this isn't a good idea. (laughs) Right. Um, And shortly after, I think uh, the book something that I found interesting was that we're doing a few time jumps throughout. Yeah. Like we're getting just a brief summary of what's been the the going ons of the Padovano family. Um, And shortly after finding out that they're both pregnant, they both go on to have their children. And that's where we have our first big loss. Yeah. So So with the birth of Cecilia's daughter, Izzy, um, is when Charlie dies that same day. Same day. Yeah. So there's been this rift between uh, Rose and Cecilia and sort of by proxy, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, and Charlie comes to see her in the hospital after she delivers. Um, he We find out that the title of the book is because when he sees his daughters, he says, hello, beautiful to them. And that's what he says when he holds his granddaughter, his first grandchild for the first time. Um, so they have this sort of really touching experience there. And then as he's leaving the hospital, he falls down dead. Yeah. It's such as life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like those things do happen. It's almost like how can yeah. life and death are so, so closely aligned. Right. Um, and I, I did find that death to be shocking. I anticipated there might be, I mean, we, the book starts with death, right? Right. So I anticipated that death would occur again as it does in real life, but I was not expecting Charlie to die in that manner. Um, and of course we, we see how that first loss really shakes up the Padovano family. Yeah. Like they're never going to be the same again. And Rose blames Cecilia for it. Right. So well, grief can do some, of course, you know, yeah. it, grief, grief is tough. I, I'm not going to make any excuses for her, but I felt that she might have always been looking for an out of her own family. Maybe that's brazen to say, but I do feel that she wasted no time Absolutely. after his death of being like, you know, my girl, my girls are grown up. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to Florida I'm and do my Florida. thing. Yeah. yeah. Which she pretty much remains in Florida, and we only have little yeah. glimpses of her uh, 
through some of the other characters. Yeah, and it, but I just think it's so it was so odd because she, you know, this this legitimate grandchild that's coming, Julia's child, she doesn't even seem to care to be, and maybe because her own mother was absent and she didn't ever have anyone to model herself after as a grandmother. But she just decides to up and leave. And and then there's that confrontation at the airport, right? Julia, heavily pregnant, takes Rose to the airport to go to Florida. She's sold the family home. She's moving into a condo down there with a bunch of other, we assume, you know, widows or divorcees. Retired ladies. Retired ladies down in a condo in Florida. And Cecilia and Izzy show up at the airport. And she says to Rose, you can't, I'm not going to let you leave without meeting your first grandchild. And she points at Julia's pregnant belly and says, that's my first grandchild. I just, I cannot imagine what would lead a parent to act that way. Yeah, that was really telling of how, how easy it was for her to distance herself from something that she didn't agree with. But I mean, she modeled exactly what was modeled to her. Yeah, she knew no other way. Yeah, But that was a choice, I think. I think it was the wrong choice, certainly. I would not make that choice myself. But I feel like, again, man, we got to break these generational curses when, yeah. when, whenever we can in, in this situation. And I think in many others in this story, people chose not to Yeah, for whatever yeah. reason that was. Yeah, there's only so much I think that you can say is a result of um, – as a result of the way you were raised and what was modeled to you, at, at some point you have to take responsibility for the choices you make too. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Um, so we, we now in a short period of time, and I'm sure as felt by the girls, you know, they essentially lost both their parents right. at the same time. Absolutely. Um, it turns out that with all of his, I'm probably going to butcher this word, passivity. <laughs> Passivity? His passivity? <laughs> I'll cut that out. Uh, all his passivity, uh, Charlie was really the glue that held the family together. Yeah, without him, it all falls apart. Yep. So after, you know, losing both their parents, I think the next big plot point of this book is the breakdown that we see occur to William. Yeah. So, I mean, it happens pretty soon after Julia gives birth. So she gives birth that same day that Rose goes to Florida. And Julia talks about this sort of transformative experience that giving birth um, produces in her. What did you think about that? About this like primal sort of like, I can do anything. What did you think about that? I almost felt like that it was, it felt like for me would be the polar opposite of like postpartum depression. Yeah. Maybe it was like a postpartum manic, manic episode. Yeah, because yeah. I did not have any of those experiences, although I love my children. And I, you know, I feel like as a mom, you understand, like, you, you do feel a sense of empowerment in childbirth and becoming a mom and all these life changes. But I felt like hers really were an extension of herself, not yeah. an extension of her daughter. Does that make sense? Right. Like it didn't right. seem like. Yeah. It also, she very, very obviously left William out of the equation, right? Like, I've created this thing. I've done this thing. It's like, well, yeah, you gave birth, but you're not the one who, like, made her all on your own. Right. (laughs) We need a little (laughs) bit of extra ingredients. Right. Um, Yeah. But I do feel that that probably was reflective of William already being somewhat disassociated to the Mm -hmm. whole process, right? I mean, he is involved, surely, but 
you're already seeing the disconnect between yeah. William and Julia taking place. I don't think it's right. You know, of any surprise that what will happen next is a solidification of what has already kind right. of been happening, right? Right. And William's detachment with Alice, their baby, is really what we find out later and what Julia maybe would have been able to see had she known William better and been more in touch with his needs is that she and of course she has no idea at this point that he had a sister that he lost, but his um he he's afraid that something's going to happen to Alice or right. that he, that he is going to cause harm to her and that is why he doesn't want to hold her and he talks about staying up at night watching her breathe watching her talk about a trauma response yeah. right I mean yeah. he, he I I feel like that was a such a how do I want to say this I I just felt for him so much mm. in that that he sees you know I this precious baby. And he feels like he can't be what he needs to be for this yeah. baby, right? Yeah, that he that she would be better off without she's, him she's because he, he could him, right? he could only cause harm. He could right. only mess her up in some way. Uh, that's yeah. that was sad, yeah. and I I think that it definitely plays a big part into what we now know is his suicide attempt. I mean, right. he yeah. decides to... Well, he starts to spiral because he accident. he's so tired and he's sinking into this depression that he accidentally falls asleep on a bench, right? He's, talk- oh, he's yes, talking to this... The professor that was yes. the class where he and Julia met. Yes. Um, he approaches this professor who is aging, um, getting ready to retire to d- discuss with him. I think he wants to talk to him about his life or something, right? But he ends up falling asleep on the bench and misses a class which oh, just sort and of then snowballs, he spirals, right? He right. Then he his then TA he doesn't sessions. Yeah, yeah. So he um, and Julia doesn't know that this is happening. He's lying to her and telling her everything's fine. Everything's fine. She calls into the office, I think, and finds out from the secretary that he's missed several classes and that right. he may get put on probation. And it's when she confronts him that he just shuts down. Mm-hmm. He said he writes a note leaves a check that his parents had sent when he told them he was getting married. They sent him a $10,000 check that he never cashed. Didn't show up to his wedding. Didn't show up to his wedding, but sent him $10,000. He never cashed the check, but he gives Julia the check. He writes her this short letter telling her, you know, you're better off without me. And he's out the door. He's gone. Yeah. And then we, you know, get to his actual attempt, right? He walks into... To Lake Michigan. Lake Lake Michigan. Um, I want to kind of take a minute just to kind of talk about how impressed I was with Kent, right? So mm. s- Julia is, she's, she's self, totally yeah. self-focused. She's, Goodbye. How could he do this to me? Right. What's wrong with him? Right. That he would do this. Yeah. A lot of ignorance about mental health, which I think is, makes sense given that we're in the eighties here. Yeah, early eighties. Early eighties. Right. Yeah. Um, but Sylvie, she jumps right in, and right. she she's the first person. Yeah, who I well, think I think we know, neglected we to talk about their yeah. little incident on the bench that happens. Yes. Which I I think you maybe uh, n- neither one of us I think gla- really understood the significance of that event in totality. I mean, I got that they were sharing this intimate moment of vulnerability, yeah, of vulnerability, mm-hmm. and actually sort of 
he both of them were feeling seen for the first time because Sylvie sort of um, has this idea that, you know, she she's not really sure what it is she wants. She wants to have this great love, but she feels like no one understands her, that Charlie was the only one who understood her and now he's gone. And when she and William have this moment on the bench, she feels like he sees her and understands her and vice versa for him. So when Julia calls Sylvie to tell her William's gone, Sylvie recognizes this is not normal behavior. This is not William. Something is wrong with William for him to have done this. And Julia is like, what are you talking about? Something's wrong with, I'm the one in trouble. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm the one here who needs help. <laughs> and you should be, feel sorry for me, not him. Right. Yeah. Very, a very selfish outlook. But I definitely felt like reading that scene on the bench, which now for William is like his second pivotal moment that occurs on a bench. Mm-hmm. One with a professor that maybe he sees himself in, in right. the future if that if that's the path he takes. Yeah. As a history teacher, am I going to just, you know... Right, because Die on a bench. Right, well, because so he falls asleep on the bench next to the professor, and then what? A couple days later, or the next day, sees the obituary in yeah. the paper that that guy had had gone home and died that right. day, basically. So right. I think he sees his whole life flash before his eyes. Right, and I de- I definitely felt when reading the scene on the bench between Sylvie and William's characters, I didn't initially see that as such a pivotal moment. Like I I didn't feel like any think major had happened, but I definitely came to understand it as I saw it through the point of view of the characters, which it seemed like at that point, William and Sylvie had a recognition that they shouldn't be spending much time alone together. That's what the most that I gleaned from that. Yeah. Um, They recognized that it was like more intimate than it should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which I think is interesting because I think thinking about intimacy, it can really develop over those small moments, right, that can maybe seem insignificant and maybe a reason why couples have emotional affairs and, yeah, you know, tend to seek something outside of their marriage. But I definitely I, – I was still glad that Sylvie was willing to step up during William's mental breakdown because if she hadn't taken action, right. Kent wouldn't have taken action. Right. The whole basketball team's looking for – Right. William. Yeah, it was Sylvie's, Sylvie's idea to call Kent. Right. She's, she asks Julia, have you called Kent? And Julia says, why would I call Kent? Yeah. And, yeah, well, and, and she is, she tells her, you can call Kent if you want, but, you and, know. But he's, he's not allowed upstairs. Yeah, he, he can't, he can't come, come into the apartment. He can't come up. Yeah. So, you know, we'll kind of take it to the next step. You know, William's found, right? It takes like, what, yep. 20, not a, 24 a full, hours. Uh, all, almost, I think, yeah, that he's gone. Yeah, he's and and yeah. I thought that they were pull, you know, when they do find him, I, I thought that they were recovering a body. I, did, I, I didn't I, think I we did were too. recovering a, 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 a live person. Yeah, which is interesting. I mean, we don't really have too many details, right? We know that he goes in the water and he's found, um, and then he spends a significant amount of time in a psychiatric hospital. Yes, um, Julia's not visiting. Nope. Julia, in fact, decides to start her life anew. Yeah. She um she reaches out to a professor that um, had previously offered her a job and says, I want a job. And he says, well, I, this is in the fall. And he says, well, I won't be, or actually, no, I think it's, we're going into fall. So Mm -hmm. end of summer. And he says, you know, I'm getting ready to go to New York. So I won't be able to offer you a job until May. And she says, "Um, well, I'll go to New York with you. Yeah. So she packs up the baby and she's, she's out. She files for divorce. Um, She 
Give Sylvie the paperwork to... Uh, yes, because so... Basically serve William. Well, William tells Sylvie to let Julia know that he does not want custody of Alice. He gives her up um, because she's better off without him. Sylvia tries to talk to him about it, but... Sylvie, sorry, tries to talk to him about it, but does not... He doesn't want to hear it. So when Sylvie tells Julia that William gives up his rights, she's ecstatic. That's, yeah. She's like, great. This is all working out according to plan. So she, he signs the papers and Julia takes the baby and she's out. Yeah. She pivoted hard. Yeah. She just went with it. Which I feel like is also kind of a trauma response, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, she seems to be very happy, but it's, it, it, it's, not, it's, it's not normal. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's a normal response, yeah. which I think, um, you know, Earlier on, we read a little snippet of this book, and a part that met, I found very profound was the therapist's response to William's parents. And mm. I think that that was so validating for him, for someone to say, hey, this isn't a normal response right. to what is happening to you, nor was it ever normal for your parents to treat you in such a way that was so, I don't know, diminishing of him as a person. Absolutely. And, you know, we spend some time in the hospital with William and after he is discharged, it's the first opportunity in his life that we've seen that he's going to start to make his own choices in a, in a way that matters, right. And has lasting results. He goes back to Northwestern. He's going to become involved with the basketball team in a new way that he hadn't been before. And I think that that was what he needed at the time. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think we can kind of recap that fairly briefly. He, yeah. So, well, I mean, so it's it's tied as well to his budding relationship with Sylvie, right? Mm-hmm. So at the same time as he leaves the mental hospital and he's given a job as an RA at mm-hmm. Northwestern, so he has a place to live. Yeah. Um. Uh. The the physio Arash. At um yes. at the at Northwestern, um gives him a well he doesn't necessarily have a real job but he has sort of um said you know you're you're really great at talking to the guys about helping them understand you know how important it is to properly treat your injuries and don't hide your injuries from us so that we can help you mm-hmm. so he starts doing that in combination with his RA job and then that's when he and Sylvie start this romance mm-hmm. um so that that is. He, he pushes against it at first, but then Kent comes in and, you know, they figure figures out what's going on. And he's like, you can't can't be lying. Yeah. You, you got to be honest about what's going yeah. on or it's going to affect your recovery. Right. Right. So at this time, Kent encourages William to basically, like you mentioned, fess up. Right. And I will have to say I was disappointed because, you know, the book at this thus far has shown us that there's almost like two sets of relationships within the siblings. We have mm-hmm. the twins obviously have that special bond due to yeah. which I'm sure you kind of as a mom of twins yeah. can kind of see that with your own kids, but they have, you know, this own special bond. And then Sylvie and Julia as the two older siblings also have this special bond that right. sets them apart a little bit. Yeah. But I felt like it was so cowardly for Sylvie to not tell Julia about her relationship with William. And she sends one of the twins yeah. to do it, which well, so I I can't remember, was that her idea or was that one of the twins' idea that Julia needed to be told in person and that one of them was going to do it? 
I don't know if it makes a difference, but okay. I think – She should have just owned yeah, up and said, no, I'm going to do it. she should have just owned up to it. Right. I mean, I think it would have resulted in a different – I think it would have had a different result had Maybe. Sylvie owned up to it and also broke the news because it's like – you know, Julia's all the way off in New York with Alice. She's already super set apart from her family. Mm-hmm. Emmeline, is it Emmeline or Emmeline? Emmeline, I think. I, Emmeline I is the one who's like the soft sister. She's going to go ahead and, you know, break this news to her her big sister. And I just felt like then, it, you know, I almost felt like Sylvie washed her hands clean of the situation. And they, they never talk again. It's yeah. like 25 years go by. Well, and they, it's been so, it's so hard because, you know, when, um, Sylvie was living with um, with Julia and uh, William for a little while there um, when Julia was pregnant, when they were first married, and they were so close, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then um, they really started to drift apart at, at the time of William's breakdown because right. Sylvie took such an active role. And so um, Julia talks about how when she's in New York – um, they have these phone conversations where she feels like she's always telling Sylvie all about her life. And then Sylvie is being very guarded and not really talking yeah. much. So so their relationship definitely was already breaking yeah. down up to this point. But yeah, this is like the nail in the coffin where Julia cannot understand. And it's not that Cecilia and Emmeline were 100% on board with the relationship. No, they didn't you know, take it well at they first. Did, they didn't take it well. They couldn't understand why it had to be William, why yeah, it couldn't be the, someone yeah, else. Anyone else. Anyone any else. Any other man. Right. Literally any other man. Right. And even uh, Rose uh, has a response to Julia finding out. She's like, well, you basically pushed Sylvia at him. Right. You didn't so want to go to the Julia hospital. For it. You didn't want to you know, support him during that time. And I don't think that Rose even had the capability to say, hey, your husband's having a mental health breakdown and needs your support. Mm-hmm. I think it was more just about that duty. Right. You know, um, which I think the, the twins also disagree with the coupling as well. But I think they also can see what William had gone through. They were definitely more involved. They visited with him. They saw this basically tearing down and then rebuilding of William as a person. And I think I I didn't agree with the relationship either. I think it was pretty poor taste, (laughs) but do these things happen? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely could have a lot of empathy for both Sylvia and William but also recognize that it probably wasn't the best idea for them to get together. Right. Um, but again, tr- that was a, I, I couldn't my ideas go as, go as far as to say that that was a trauma bond in and of itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard to know. I mean, there, there is longevity there and they clearly are both very happy and do very well together, but that initial bonding, it it's, it's hard to say, you know, what, and and does that make it less legitimate? I don't know, but but yeah, I think that the way that whole thing started is is not how I would prefer to start a relationship. <laughs> Let's just say that much. Yeah, there was some baggage yeah. there, but yeah, the twins uh, end up over time becoming accustomed to it. Yeah, and and accepting of it. I mean, yeah. and I think you know we haven't talked much yet about what's going on with the two of them, but you know, Cecilia's life really revolves around her daughter and her art. Mm-hmm. Um, so she does date, but doesn't have any serious relationships. And then um, 
at some point along the way, Emmeline has come out to her sisters that she is a lesbian and she's in love with this woman that she works with at the daycare center. Can you remind um, me of her name? I, Josie. I Josie. Think. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so whether or not I, I'm not, I at tr- struggle a little bit with like whether Emmeline's relationship experience is really that um, uh, realistic because it it all it all works out. Like she she tells Josie that she loves her and Josie loves her too, and then they're together for. <laughs> rest of the book. So, but it's kind of idealistic, I think, in terms of the fact that like the first person she's ever interested in after coming out is the person that she ends up with. Right. But, but it, it, it I think because of her ex- relationship experience and loving this person so much, um, she is understanding of Sylvie and William and understanding yeah. that like it couldn't, it, it, could, it couldn't just be anybody else. Yeah. You know, Sylvie yeah. can't say it, it, it is William. He is the one there isn't anyone else. Right. Right. So, which, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the four siblings needed to just have like a happy story as well. <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, they're all three out of the four siblings are not having the greatest time in their endeavors with love. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not the right way to put it. I mean, I feel like Cecilia was pretty confident with her decisions. Yeah, I think that was and that was, was the way she wanted it. She was fine with it. So maybe but at the same time she also did have an unconventional perhaps for the time an unconventional start to her family. I think now would be a different scenario. Mm-hmm. You know, in 2023 right. we're, we're having a different conversation um about starting a family. Oh. Yeah. So at, up until this point in the book, I think it's important to mention that the pacing kind of changes a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It felt like we spent quite a bit of time in William's childhood, early life, and then early adulthood. But we start to see some time jumps take place, um, particularly in regards to Julia and Alice. Yes. So I think Alice is in kindergarten or about age five. When Julia tells her that her father is dead, that he's Mm -hmm. died in a car accident, and she had previously told Rose that was her plan, that she was going to tell, eventually tell Alice that William was dead. And Rose couldn't believe it. And um, Julia said, well, he's basically dead. He's not involved. And uh, I think at that point, Rose sort of suggested that, oh, well, you're going to, um, maybe you'll change your mind, right? Mm -hmm. But no, she decides to tell her. and, And, you know... I think it it blows my mind that Julia doesn't realize that this is going to have an impact on her Mm -hmm. daughter because whether or not her father has been involved in her life, she assumes that she has one somewhere. Right. And then to give her this very specific manner of death of dying in a car accident, you know, this becomes an obsession almost for Alice. In a few years, she does a report on car accidents. (laughs) It terrifies her class to the extent that Julia has to be brought in because she's talked about all celebrities who've died in car accidents and and all the ways you can die in a car accident. Shows them pictures. So, you know, we see this very traumatic experience. Also, Julia is always so concerned about whether or not Alice is happy. She refers to, um, you know, as long as Alice doesn't have her father's darkness, she'll Mm, be fine. So she's always looking to see if Alice is showing any signs of what what we know is depression. And so she's shaping Alice to be to to act in a way that was very similar to William as a child, you right. know, hiding her true emotions, trying to please her mother. Uh, and, it, and it ends up really, I feel like driving a huge barrier between how much Alice feels like she can actually come to her mom with things, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is, you definitely see a lot of 
William and Alice, which is so interesting because it does bring up that uh, nature versus nurture. Absolutely. Right? Where yeah. this man's not even in her life, yet she she's very has like so him. many of his characteristics. Well, and, and physically, like yeah. physically too. She's, and She's tall. Yeah, yeah, I think that is, um, you, you know, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like Julia has tried to excise William from her life, but she cannot because her daughter is like the female version of him, both in personality and in physical appearance. She's six foot one. She's blonde, blue eyed just like him. And so no matter what Julia does, she cannot erase him from right. her life. Right. She, the, the reckoning will come at some point, right? Right. So really, you know, at this point in the novel, we're doing some massive time jumps, right? So eventually yeah. we, we are 25 years into the future. Um, a lot has changed um, in the dynamics of the family, uh, but the major plot points are somewhat similar. We have Rose is still in Florida. Yeah. Julia is living this, you know, high powered businesswoman life in New York City. You know, yep. seems like she's doing well, at least career wise, which is what she always wanted ultimately, right? Yeah. She, she had tried to really push her own professional endeavors on William. Didn't work out that way or that well, I should say but she's doing it herself. Yeah. Uh, we have the twins are, they have the, the, the two house situation. Yeah. Yep. So they own a couple. So Josie and Emmeline own a couple of daycares, maybe more than two. They're also foster parents. Um, they've bought these two houses that are right next to each other in their old neighborhood and they've knocked down the fence. So they have the like, or they call it like the super duplex or the something like duplex, that. Yep. So Izzy decides where she's going to stay based on how she's feeling. Like if her mom has a boyfriend over, she stays with Emmeline and Josie. If not, she's over at her right. mom's house. So um, William is working for the Chicago Bulls, right? Yeah, as a yeah. physio. As a he, physio. He's, yeah. yeah, he's in, uh, uh, inspired to go back to school by the physio that had worked uh, with him at Northwestern. And uh, Kent is the doctor for the yeah, Bulls. Yeah. Um, he had gotten married and then divorced. ends up divorced. And yep. so, um, and then Sylvie is now head librarian. Yeah. So, yeah. We didn't really talk too much about head librarian Elaine, but I felt <laughs> like she was a presence in yeah. this book. Yeah. Um, and also, it's fair to mention that uh, Cecilia has really taken off with her art. It seems mm, like there's painting murals, murals all over. And she's really uh, using those murals to really memorialize her family throughout the city. Right. And they're, you know, right. she's painting the saints that yeah. her mom used to use to discipline the girls yeah. as kids. And, and William very astutely notes that, like, all of the women that she paints, they, they look like all of the sisters. She's yeah. somehow making one woman look like all of them. Yeah, yeah, which I so. thought was really beautiful. And I, it kind of leads me to the the um, artwork on the book, right? Mm, That's mm-hmm. like a – I felt like that was – it was nice to see that there was a reason for how the artwork on the book looked right? to kind of tie it back into the storyline. Yeah. But, you know, after this time jump, we end up – Finding out that Sylvie and William are still very much happily together. Yeah, they're married. They're married. Um, the sisters really haven't been in touch with Julia nor Rose that often. Um, we, we, throughout the time jumps, find out that Julia was, you know, ripping up postcards and pictures of mm-hmm. Izzy, not really allowing Alice to have any sort of substantial relationship yeah. with any of her sisters, except for Rose, yeah. grandmother Rose, who she yeah. sees, you know, once a year right. in Florida. So, yeah. and Alice is aware of the existence of her aunts and her cousin and has seen pictures. I don't think she's seen pictures of Izzy, right? Because I don't think Rose has a picture of Izzy. She finds maybe a picture um, 
in Julia's things. In Julia's things. Earlier in her childhood. Right. right? But she's seen some things at Rose's house. Yes. Of the sisters. Of the Right. Yeah. So, and Alice is an adult now. She's living in New York City. She's a copy editor, you know, barely making any money. But, um, she um she's doing all right her mom doesn't really understand her her mom doesn't really understand that she's you know not not driven mm-hmm. because she's so driven but they they still get together once a week i think for something like, like a movie movie night yeah, or something cook together yeah. yeah but it feels like alice really just placates her mother mm. but doesn't really have a true relationship which i think requires a little bit more than just yeah you know, getting together, like there's doesn't really seem like there's much communication or right. honesty. Right. Um, and so we end up finding out, which kind of ends up being like the major climactic, you know, part emphasis on the book. I don't know if I, that's how I want to phrase it, but the major plot point that kind of ends up tying up all these loose ends that have taken place over 25 years is that Sylvie has an inoperable brain tumor terminal cancer she's yeah gonna, she, yeah she doesn't have much time yeah i think they give her six months at the yeah. time of diagnosis yeah um and so william realizes that she wants and needs julia um mm-hmm. and sylvie tells her sisters please don't reach out mm-hmm. to julia um but william decides that he's going to do it and so he reaches out to her and she initially um she, she kind of has a little mini breakdown there yeah when when he tells her what's going on yeah um, but she tells him she's not going to come visit, but then she does. She mm-hmm. shows up at the, at the library. Um, she, she visits Sylvie twice, mm-hmm. um, and they keep it a secret. They don't tell anyone. Yep. They um, end up having that special moment at the movies yeah, where, where they, they have that hands. physical contact, which I think was important for their relationship. I mean, earlier in the book, we see Julia pregnant with Alice and Sylvie, you know, snuggling with her and like mm-hmm. these sisters, were close you know yeah. they had a loss i mean 25 years to not talk to your sibling a is a, that's your whole life you know yeah that's a that's a long time so i thought that that was nice to see i felt like that was a character redemption arc for mm-hmm. julia because i would not have been surprised with how how dis- disassociated she was to william's mental health mm-hmm. crisis that she would not have wanted to right like she could have just been like uh, you yeah. know that that was definitely that was a moment of redemption that she that she did come back yeah. and that there was some resolution there at the end. Yeah. Um and it's that those visits with Sylvie that prompt Julia to admit to herself that there she had had fear part of the reason that she had refused to um acknowledge William and Sylvie's relationship and be a part of their lives was she was afraid that Alice would want to go live with her father yeah. and would prefer William and Sylvie because they could provide a nuclear family unit for her and so she decides she's going to tell Alice that her father is actually alive and that her aunt is sick and that they are married and uh, it's kind of uh blows Alice's world apart yeah i can't imagine finding out that everything i thought about my life was essentially a lie I mean, I'm sure that Alice had the ability to perceive that there was something greater at play. I mean, her, her mom was ostracized from literally her her entire family mm-hmm. at that point. I mean, there's it was her and Rose on one island, right? And then the three other sisters. But I felt like that would have been very shocking. I can't imagine. Yeah. And then and then we see how that's going to play into Alice's sense not sense of worth but like sense of self right who am i i mean i know that i don't look anything like julia right i know that i carry these pretty 
I mean, she's tall. She stands out in a crowd. She does not look like this short powerhouse mother in both looks and temperament. So now what she thought she may never get answers to, which is who who is my father. Mm -hmm. Now suddenly there's like this whole other slew of opportunity perhaps where she can get some answers, right? Yeah. Get some answers. Yeah. And so her friends convince her that she needs to go Mm -hmm. out to Chicago, even if she just stays for 24 hours. They say just stay 24 hours. So she goes out. She goes to the Bulls training facility with the intention to meet her father there, and he doesn't show up. She wrongly assumes that he has become aware that she's there because the guy at the front desk says, I I texted him or I called him to let him know, left him a voicemail. Um, But what has happened is Sylvie has died that same day day. on the same day that she's come. So again, you know, we have the same pivotal events happening at the same time, just like with Izzy's birth and Charlie's death. Now we have Sylvie's death and Alice's sort of rebirth or arrival, you know, back in Chicago. so I thought it was uh, an interesting choice to kind of make them coincide like that. It mm-hmm. wasn't a bad choice. I liked it, but I definitely felt that sense of tension for Alice. Who's like, Oh my gosh, my dad's like, does literally d- can't even tolerate to meet me. Right. You know, I could see right. that, but then certainly she finds out she, she ends up getting in contact with Izzy. Right. Right. And she then, tries to call Cecilia, but Izzy answers because S- Sylvie has died. Yes. And so, so it all comes together. They all get together at the two houses. Julia come, they call Julia to tell her that Alice is here and Sylvie has died and you need to come home. Rose um, shows up. Rose shows up. They're all, they're all back together again. Right? Yeah. So I thought, so I thought that, um, you know, when Rose shows up, I think was it was it Cecilia who says something about like she's going to pretend like nothing has happened and we're just going to yeah, let we're it all gonna we're going we're going to go with, along with it which Cecilia makes that suggestion and then literally Izzy meets her grandmother for the first time right. and she's like oh, are right. you hungry or like right. whatever it is that yeah. she says and Rose yeah. is like visibly like right oh, right <laughs> you know relieved yeah and so so Izzy breaks that curse right she breaks she the did. curse she doesn't hold it against her grandmother she that she's refused to acknowledge her and um it it's so it's it's so poignant it's so important i think to realize when we're talking about forgiveness that somebody somebody has to be the one to say i'm gonna just let it go we're mm-hmm. gonna move on right and I'm glad it was Izzy because we didn't really get too much insight into her happenings. Mm-hmm. But I do think it really shows the outcome of like how Cecilia was as a mother, right? Yeah. That she whatever she instilled in Izzy right. was enough to break that generational yeah. curse. And she's she's gonna be the one that does it, even though we don't know her too intimately. Like she, obviously she's a player yeah. in the game. We we're seeing her throughout, you know, major plot points. Um, but I'm glad it, yeah. it, I felt like she was uh, the good, uh, not the right one, but a good character yeah. to, to take that next step. Right. Well, and it's like you said, it's a reflection of the way Cecilia has raised her because Cecilia says, you know, long ago I decided I wasn't going to let this, I wasn't going to let this keep me from loving her. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to let this change how I felt about her because, you know, I, I have control over that. Right. And so that's the choice I'm making. Right. And, you know, in Cecilia's um, choices, I felt like it really allowed everyone else to kind of take that, take her lead and how they were Mm -hmm. going to approach. Like, you know, we see William and Julia have their first interaction in 25 years. We see, you know, this much anticipated 
interaction between William and Alice, which is quite overshadowed by the fact that William's at the precipice of perhaps having another either major breakdown or like what what else is there at yeah, this I point? Don't know. You know, yeah. he's he's, you know, pacing around the backyard. Yeah. He won't really look at her. Kent's there trying to Right. You know, but that's him. a testament, I think, to the fact that he has now this firm foundation, you know, that Kent and Sylvie have helped and the the rest of the Padovanos pa, is that yeah, Padovanos. <laughs> <Close> <laughs> I, almost, I almost said Padovanos. Padovanos. Um that I think is a testament to the fact that he has worked so hard on himself mm-hmm. and he has a support system now mm-hmm. and he he's medicated and he knows that experiencing emotion is normal and mm-hmm. that he has coping mechanisms and so, and they're they're all aware of it and able to give him what he needs give him his space wait for him to come to her and uh to come to alice and so i think that um that that shows you know all the progress that he's made absolutely and i i thought it was really beautiful that they both kind of like are they both come to each other, mm-hmm. Alice and William. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I cried. Oh, I did too. Oh, okay. You did. Okay. I did too. I didn't want to be <laughs> embarrassed. And I think yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about that when we go over like how we rated this book. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was so moving. And I felt like even though William didn't initially break his generational curse, I think he is going to. Yeah. And I think that how they come together and we don't get, I mean, the book doesn't end with every loose end tied up right Right, there's a lot that's and i think that's so true about life you know we don't always get that perfect ending and some things are going to be left ambiguous but we can assume as the reader that there is a new beginning there and he will be able to break that generational curse and i think we see that start in him when he decides to memorialize his sister. Right, right? yeah, he, I was going to say. Yeah, he gives Cecilia the the painting, and Cecilia takes that as an opportunity to paint not only Alice, or excuse me, he not only the, Caroline. He gives her the photograph of Caroline for her to yes. incorporate her into the murals. And yeah. she does that and incorporates Alice, which right. up until that point, he's like not willing to right. look at her. He doesn't want to face that part of his life. He has closed that door, but... I felt like that prepared him for the in-person. Right. Well, and he talks about how it, for the first time, he realizes that his absence shapes her as much as his presence did. You know, he felt like he needed to remove himself from Alice's life because if he was present, he might shape her in some way that would be detrimental and didn't realize that not being there and her knowing that she had a father who had who was not there who had chosen not to be there would would impact her in some way right i think there was a quote i I might have shared this with you um while we were like texting about the book was that um william makes a statement that you can be present and non-violent you can be on be present and be a non-violent figure in a child's life and still break that child. Mm. And I think that that's right. how he saw his father, right. you know. That his father influence. never laid a hand on him, but yeah. was still a negative, yeah. you know, terrible, destructive influence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I definitely felt really moved by this book. Mm-hmm. I know that there's, I feel like we could probably talk about <laughs> so many more of the details. Yeah. I think I think the major themes for me... Um, you know, walk, finishing this book were mental health, you mm-hmm. know, the importance of having those support systems, being that support for someone else, but also being it for yourself, um, you know, breaking those generational curses. You'll you'll hear me say that probably 
as this podcast goes on, <laughs> uh, you'll hear me talk that's about a, that. That's more. a buzzword for you. Yeah, that it totally is because I feel I feel that speaks to me personally, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that will come up organically in conversation. Um, and certainly the major theme of forgiveness. I mean, the the four sisters are never together again, right? In their lifetime, right? right. They have to come together in a way to memorialize the sister that they've lost who ends up being, you know, their quote unquote, their Beth. Right. 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 And I mean, and you know, the old adage funerals are for the living. It's true. And it, it is sad that they were not able to be together again in life, but Sylvie brought them all together again. You know, in her death, she was able to mend those relationships. Mm-hmm. It was a good book. Mm-hmm. Now moving on, I know that we've, we touched over a lot of the plot, right? Yeah, yeah. I know that there's a lot more that could be said. And if you're listening to this podcast, we would love to hear your thoughts on this. If we've missed anything or if you felt like you wanted to add to anything that we've discussed, feel free to email us. We do have bibliophiles at home at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts uh, up until, you know, this point, right? Yeah, absolutely. Or- you can also, you know, comment on our Instagram. Um, it's also bibliophiles at home. Um, so yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this book. What, how, what you think we got right? Did we get, did we get anything wrong? <laughs> <laughs> did we miss a major plot point? Please yeah. comment us kindly. Yes. <laughs> a segment that we're going to include whenever we are discussing a book is we're going to rate it and we're yeah. going to compare it to Goodreads, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So I did look it up on Goodreads. Goodreads rates it at a 4.34 stars. Right. As of the time you looked it up, because that can change all the time, right? I looked it up last night. Okay. I looked it up last night. But yes, I mean, I'm sure if I looked it up now, it could be different. But as of as of uh, April 17th, 2023, it was at 4.34 stars. And uh, what did you rate it, Jennifer? So this is the thing that bothers me a little bit about Goodreads, okay? That we can't rate it a half a star. Mm. Like, you know, so... You have so, to round. Yeah. So I, on Goodreads, I rated it four stars because I feel this is like a four and a half star book. I round it down because whether or not this is correct, this is a subjective rating system, right? So when I rate a book... I cannot rate a book five stars unless it has moved me in such a way that I feel profoundly changed. <laughs> okay. So I don't have a whole lot of five star books. I mean, and it's not just about the style or the content. It, it you know, and, and this book moved me emotionally. I cried at a couple of different points, but there has to be just something that I can't describe other than it's the it it it's this. An indescribable thing. Okay, I'll go. Yeah. I just I'm a I just wrote now. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote my master's thesis on a book um, called Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. It was written in 1900, and so in that book there is this thing that the narrator describes as the indescribable thing, and it's attributed to a person who either has it or doesn't. It can't be taught. Can't be you know. It's it's there or it's not. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the thing. The book has to have the indescribable thing if I'm going to rate it five stars. And so this was an excellent book, four and a half stars, but I rate it four on Goodreads because they won't let me do four and a half. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? I agree with you. I also rated it a 4.5, but I rounded up. Okay. And I rounded up because I cried more than once. And if a book moves me to tears, even though I may not necessarily go back to this book time time and time again, which there are those books that I'll think about Mm -hmm. years later after I read it, that I'm like, I don't know, just sits with you in a way that is that thing. But if I'm crying, if I'm shedding tears over this book, and I do not cry over many books, Mm -hmm. that's the thing for me. So I think for something to pull that emotion out from the depths of my soul, Mm -hmm. 
That, yeah, I'm going to give you, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give you a five stars. <laughs> and it is only my second five star book of the year. Okay. I've read, uh, you know, and feel free to follow us on Goodreads. Yeah. See what we're reading yeah. when we're not doing this podcast. But, you know, I there are very few and far between as far as like books that make me cry that I felt like I wanted to be generous. And having read Dear Edward, mm-hmm. I will say out of the two books, I, pr- I liked this one a lot more. Okay. And I liked... I think I said it in the trailer that I really, really liked Dear Edward. Yeah. It was very good. It it was good. It was (laughs) was good. It was good. good. (laughs) It was very good. But I felt that what I loved about this book so much was that the there were no heroes in this book. Yeah, the characters were not particularly likable, other than Kent, who maybe was like the golden boy yeah. of the book. You know, everybody had their flaws. Everybody right. had some faults. And I didn't agree with everything everybody did all the time. No, I didn't. But I did. Ag- I did love that there were so many themes of like family and like the mm-hmm. family dynamics can change over time and they ebb and flow. And at the end of the day, really, that's who you have. Right. Mm-hmm. And with all of their imperfections, they did come back together. Yeah. Which I thought was very moving. And mm-hmm. I cried. And for that alone, you will get a five star <laughs> rating from, from me on Goodreads. All right. So I know you're all eagerly awaiting the announcement of our next book mm-hmm. for our ne- next episode. So our next book is going to be The Maidens by Alex Michaelides. He is the author of The Silent Patient. Um, so I was not familiar with him. This was a suggestion you made, Camilla, to read this book. Um, and so in doing a little research, this is going to be a different book for me mm. because I do not typically read thrillers or murder books. No, so, not a fan? Yeah. No, I mean, it's not that I'm not a fan. It's just not what I'm naturally drawn to. Mm-hmm. So so we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I did read The Silent Patient, which is his other book, and I felt like when it came out, it was really, really popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, when I was posting about the podcast, uh, someone had reached out and asked me, hey, have you read The Silent Patient? Which I have. Uh, and Hot Take, it I it wasn't my favorite book. I thought it was well-written, but I was the, the plot was a little bit hard for me at times, which is a, totally a hot take. But I'm eager to read another book by him mm-hmm. and see like how his writing has evolved and how this new book. I mean, I ha- have I know nothing about it. Me either. So I'll be interested to see how it goes. Um, and we, of course, like to keep it positive in our reviews. So yes. yeah. <laughs> but I am looking forward to it. Uh, having read another one of his books, I do like to give you know go back to repeat authors. Right now, certainly there are some authors that one and done is right. enough, and we'll see. You know, good luck to you. But. Um, <laughs> That, you know, I'm, I'm excited to give this one a try. So we're very much looking forward to reading our next book. Yeah. Join us next time when we discuss The Maidens by Alex Michaelides. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Bibliophiles at Home. And any recommendations for books that you'd like to hear us review can be sent to bibliophilesathome at gmail.com. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Camilla. Until next time, happy reading. Send us recommendations for books you'd like to hear us review at bibliophilesathome at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> we just the whole podcast. <laughs>
gosh, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, let's try again. 